Yeah, as, as Juan said, um, uh, we're, as, as pastors, we are busy, but we are never too busy. So please don't take that as um, us being unapproachable. We're, we're, we're always waiting and longing uh, to meet with you all and live life together. Um, you know, within the past five weeks, um, yeah, I've been to a baby shower, which was a big blessing of a college friend, uh, administered a baptism of our uh, Pastor Stephen's son, Brooklyn, celebrated a wedding, which was uh, very beautiful, and uh, also attended uh, four funerals, which was very sad, but also very deeply encouraging. Within the past five weeks, there was so much life and also so much death, and as humans, there is a, a deep significance um, uh, to, to these life markers. Uh, more and more I was able to see through these events in the past five weeks that life is sacred and death is sad. To be human is to experience life and death in a deeper way than any other creature. For all other creatures, existence is just an experience of the circle of life. But for humans, it's, it's not a circle. It's, uh, there's a beginning, an end, and then there's eternity. This is because as humans, we are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. This is because when God created us, he breathed life into us and made us in his own likeness. This is because as humans, we are different and set apart and holy than any other creation or creature. And at the same time, as we think about our culture, it seems um, as we move forward that we're losing a bit of dignity in life the sacredness of our image of God, the, the sanctity of life. Something that we can all relate to. Just two days ago, there was an article that came out in the Washington Post titled, Spring Forward to Daylight Saving Time is Obsolete, Confusing, and Unhealthy. Subtext, the annual time changes under legislative challenge in states and in Congress. And perhaps some of us, as we're sitting here this morning, losing an hour of sleep, feel a little closer to death. But bear with us. But in all seriousness, you know, there never seems to be any shortage of brokenness or death. Politicians, religious groups, and activists are still debating the ethics of abortion, euthanasia. Mass shootings and gun violence doesn't seem to be getting any better. The possibility of a nuclear war seems always to be on a slow simmer. Suicide rates seem to be climbing and more prevalent. And it also seems to be hitting closer to home. And the irony of all this is that the more that our society spins out into chaos, the more we turn our gaze, disengage, and distance ourselves from it. As we think about the Sixth Commandment, as we hear the Sixth Commandment, as we submit under the Sixth Commandment, today, I ask that we think about life. We'll look at three points. First, what is the Sixth Commandment? Second, how does it address our actions? And third, how does it also address our hearts? So what is the Sixth Commandment? Up to this point, I'm sure that many of us were very willing to admit that we're not able to keep the commandments given to us previously. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make idols 
Well, many of us, we're very free to admit that that is really hard for us. We do turn to other things. It's a struggle. You shall not take the name of God in vain. This too, we would freely admit that we struggle. You shall remember and keep the holy, you shall remember and keep holy the Sabbath. You shall honor your father and mother. In all these things, indeed, we very freely say, yes, I need the help of Jesus Christ to obey and grow in this commandment. But perhaps today, as we talk about you shall not murder, some of us are thinking, I wonder how this will address me. What does this have to do with me? Many of us perhaps think that it's a little bit irrelevant. Never have you committed a murder, and never do you think about really committing or carrying out a murder. Yet like all the other commandments, this commandment, you shall not murder, is also very relevant not only to you and me, but to every human being. We know that when it comes to the commandments that whenever there is a, a negative prohibition, there's also a positive implication. If we're being told not to murder, then there is also a positive aspect of it, perhaps to preserve life or actually to give life, so to speak. So as we think about the sixth commandment, our focal point starts to come and, and really settle on this idea of preserving life, not simply not murdering, but also preserving the sanctity and the beauty of life. And, and, and I, I, do, I do feel that I have to step aside real quick and just to say, because I know many of you guys are perhaps walking with some older parents in the hospital, I, I do want to say that as we, as we think about this commandment, it's to preserve life, um, but not to prolong it unnecessarily. I think with some modern technology, we found ways to prolong life, but in some ways, maybe without the dignity and the beauty we were meant to. And so, just as an encouragement, as we think about this idea of preserving life, it is done so before the Lord in a dignified way. So what is this commandment saying, you shall not murder? If that is the negative prohibition, then how are we to understand what we are actually supposed to do? If we look at the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question and answer 105, it, it asks this very exact question, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? And this is the answer that follows. I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be a party to do this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Now, I think this is a very good and proper interpretation of the Sixth Commandment. Right? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. And not by thoughts, not by words, this is what I love, not by look or gesture. You know, often we think, long as we don't say it, long as we don't think it, long as we don't really do it, uh, we're, we're okay with the sin. But even here, the, the gaze, the gesture, the cold-heartedness, the separation, the, I don't want to deal with you, you don't, you don't really exist to me, type of feeling, the coldness, is also encompassed in this understanding. And I'll, 
and, and of course, certainly not by actual deeds. And we're called not to join in this type of participation as well. Rather, we're challenged to uh, put away all desires of revenge and, and not to harm ourselves or anyone in a reckless way. So we see that the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, indeed has a, a, a negative prohibition of don't cause harm or cause murder, but also there is a positive aspect of preserving life by loving others. So we see that this commandment addresses two aspects. It addresses our actions, and it also addresses our hearts. To the second point, you like this, we're moving quickly. The second point, our actions. In Luke 10, Jesus is sitting down and he's teaching, and we see this amazing illustration of this commandment actually taking place. Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and many of us are familiar with it, but let's revisit it again. The context is set up like this. We're told that a lawyer stood up. He stands up and he puts Jesus to the test. Bold, but okay. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus is asking the lawyer, well, what did the commandment say? What is your interpretation of the commandments? And the lawyer basically gives this short but very concise and accurate answer. He says, basically, to love God and love his people. Jesus affirms this. He says, yes, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's just interesting here that as we obey the commandments, it's also prolonging and preserving our life. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Love God and love his people. If you do this, you will live. The lawyer then, desiring to justify himself, continues to ask Jesus. And if you know the story at this point, you're like, oh, man, you should have just stopped there. You know, just, just move along. But he says... All right, Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And this is what Jesus replies in Luke 10, 30 to 37. Jesus replies to this lawyer. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's going into this parable now. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he, the lawyer, says, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In this parable, we see that Jesus is addressing the question, who is my neighbor? But he's also addressing the Ten Commandments. He's addressing specifically perhaps what it means to love and to preserve life. And when we are sitting here and when we are reading and hearing this parable, it can seem rather flat and, and, and basically clear because we're very familiar with it. However, if, if I were there, I thought to myself, you know, I, I, it wouldn't be as flat and clear if, if that was me walking on the side of the road and I saw this man lying there half dead. I would hesitate. I would have a lot of thoughts, I would have a lot of questions, I would have a lot of fear, and maybe you would too. I would think to myself, well, perhaps, what was this guy doing in this part of town anyway? If I, if I help, I may have to get involved in court and be a witness, close down my business, lose a whole day's wage, perhaps even endanger myself if identified by the robbers. Does this guy have health insurance? Or am I going to have to pay out of my pocket? Can he afford any treatment? I'm short on time. What's the bare minimum I can do? I don't want to waste too much time or money. How can I be efficient in helping this person? If I help this man, could I also be in danger? Will he take advantage of me? If I were to treat his wounds and bind him up, What if he has a transmittable disease and his blood somehow enters my system? Should I really be touching the blood here? Should I really be addressing his wounds? Should I put him on my animal? What if he was playing possum and he wakes up and robs me? What if this whole thing is a trick? By this parable, Jesus gives us a very concrete example of how the sixth commandment looks like in action. We're told the priests saw him, the Levites saw him, but it was the Samaritan who had compassion. The command is not simply do not murder, but perhaps a deeper understanding positively is to have compassion when we see people like this, when we encounter situations like this, to have compassion to others, to do all that we can to preserve their life. And if you guys were ever in that situation, it's okay to feel these things. But as Christians, we're called to a boldness to say, maybe they will take advantage of me. Maybe this is a trick. Maybe he doesn't have health insurance. Maybe I will lose a lot of money and a lot of time. But a hard challenge is, as Christians, we are still called to move towards, engage, and have compassion I went to the Willow Grove uh, Aldi. I don't know if that's how it's properly pronounced. Forgive me if that's wrong. I know it's German. Perhaps it's Aldi. But I was at Aldi with my youngest son, JJ, in the car. I pull up, I take my son out, I get a shopping cart, I'm ready to go in, and there's a lady in the front, and she asked me for money. And I genuinely didn't have any cash. I said, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. Okay, disengaged, and I start to take a couple steps, and I said, you know what? Turned around, and I said, do you need anything? Do you need groceries? Is there something you need to buy? She says, yes. 
I said, okay, come on in. Get whatever you need. I'll get it for you. Get whatever you need. So I'm doing my shopping, and I don't want it to be awkward. So I try to talk to her small talk, but I give her her space. She gets what she needs. And I say, hey, meet me at the um, cash register, and, and you know, I'll take care of it when you're done. She comes, and in her cart, I see cases of energy drinks, cases of candy, chips, cases of all sorts of things that doesn't seem, in my judgment, seem like essentials. And I said, you know, why don't we put some of this back? That was really hard for me because I was just like, maybe I should just buy it. But why don't we put some of this stuff back? I could tell just by her engagement that she was not as healthy, not as stable, and I thought maybe these things weren't good for her anyway. I said, are you allowed to have these? She said, yeah. So we got her some few things, and the whole time she's asking me for money and for cigarettes. I said, I'm sorry, I don't have any. The day was really cold, so I said, hey, where do you live? Are you going to walk back? She says, yeah, I live you know, down the street, so I'll give you a ride. But a part of me, it took a lot for me to say I'll give you a ride. I was with my youngest son, JJ, still a baby, and I said, what if she's not stable? What if I put myself and my kid in danger? I never actually told my wife this story either. This is the first time she's hearing it. I'm sorry. But I, but I, I kept trying to challenge myself. I said, you know what? Let's trust the Lord. So I gave her a ride. I'm going in, and, and she lives in a group home. And the whole time, she's like, thank you, thank you. But she's going back and forth. Thank you, thank you. Hey, can I have some money? Do you have any cigarettes? Can I have some money? And I was like, no, I, I don't. I'm sorry. And, and after a while, after this constant, thank you, thank you. Do you have some money? Can I get some more money and cigarettes? I started to think, man, was I just hoodwinked? Did she just take advantage of me? And I'm ashamed to admit that part of me, even, even trying to be a good Samaritan, I, I thought, man, I just got taken advantage of. That was pointless. But nonetheless, we're challenged to love those. Nonetheless, even if it is at our loss, we're challenged by this commandment to still have compassion. Now, maybe I needed to grow in wisdom. Maybe you and I need to grow in wisdom and how to do this better but the command still stands to have compassion, to love, to draw near, to preserve and encourage life. We see something similar in Matthew 25. Jesus speaks about the final judgment here. And he speaks to those who are righteous and those who are not. And he says this to both of them. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's talking to the Christians here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the Christian people were puzzled. And they said, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? When do we see you thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you naked and clothe you? When do we see you in prison? Because these things didn't literally happen. And then Jesus says, the king will, will, will reply at this time, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying that if we do it to the least of those around us, of our brethren, it is the same thing as doing it 
for our own Lord and Savior, Jesus. He's calling us to love others as we love Jesus. It's easy to love Jesus, though, for you and I, isn't it? It's so easy to love him. He gave us eternal life. We can pray to him. He comforts us. But the Lord challenges us to love others as we love him, as we would treat Jesus. And in 1 John 3, we're reminded of this reality. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Christians, brothers and sisters, let us not just speak of love, but let us participate in carrying out actions of love. You know, I, there is a, um, a situation, an incident that I experienced that I don't know if I'll ever forget or quite let go of until I see Jesus. There was a Hispanic lady holding her baby in the front of our church, and she was asking for money. And as people were driving out, they were giving out cash. And after a while, some of the pastors noticed, I noticed, and so we went up to her and we said, hey, are you okay? What do you need? She didn't seem to speak English, so we brought her into the office. The other pastors were talking to her, and I went to our cafeteria and got some uh, porridge and some sandwiches. And as I was away, um, the uh, decree came down from the higher rungs to say to her, uh, give her $20 and tell her to go. And if she comes back, we're gonna call the police. And I was stunned and I was shocked. And this isn't uh, this on any of them, but rather um, after hearing that, I stood silent. as they proceeded to carry out this, um, I just watched. I couldn't believe it. It was in my early years of seminary and serving, and so um, I was really into wearing suits. I have them tailored by my mother-in-law. Felt sharp, looked sharp, you know, and, and I've never felt so sleazy before the Lord. I never felt so cowardly and so ashamed. Um, and they just sent her on her way. And looking back, I thought, why didn't I say anything? You know, I was young. I thought it wasn't my place. I thought, I don't know, maybe that is the best thing. Maybe she is taking advantage of us. And I think that will inform my pastoral life and my personal life for a long time. And I think that'll be one of the first things <clears throat> um, I'll give account to, to Jesus when I see him. And I know I'm forgiven and he is gracious, but that's something, uh, a bit of a testimony of shame that I carry. Um, I was driving by with my family, uh, going to Target, in Abington, and we drive through the Abington Hospital. And I was, I was driving, at the, we were at a stop sign, and we continued to go, and I saw some old man 
uh, hunched over, holding his chest, and some lady was running to him. I was just watching, and I thought, oh, that doesn't look good. And in a matter of seconds, I don't know what's going on. I have my family with me. My kids are crying. We're trying to get to Target. We're just trying to get on with our day. And the next thing I know, we're just past the situation. And then it occurred to me, that man was probably having a heart attack. I just kept on going. And I just thought to myself, man, it happened so quickly. The opportunities come, and they are so fleeting. I saw another mother in front of uh, the strip mall over there in, uh, where Toys R Us and Babies R Us, um, that European wax center and corner bakery in Anthony Colfire. She was right at the entrance, another Hispanic lady holding her baby and also with a couple other children around her. I was leaving Toys R Us and I saw her and um, I was starting to drive by and I just stopped, turned my car around, I went back to Toys R Us, I loaded up the gift card with some money and I pulled my car over, went back to her, pulled my car over, and I gave her the gift card, and she didn't seem like she speak English, and so I said, you know, God bless you, God loves you, and you know, just here is something for your babies. You know, I pointed to Toys R Us, you can go to Toys R Us. And um, as soon as that was done, I start to shift over to go back to my car, and then I see this Hispanic man in a, in a car just kind of watching the situation, and. I'm cynical and I thought, man, I just got played. Maybe this is just something that you know, they do once in a while to get money. And then I was so angry at myself. I said, well, why? It wasn't like I gave a huge sum of money or my life savings. I thought, why am I so concerned about being taken advantage of? Why am I so worried about helping someone and then so quick to feel like oh, they didn't appreciate it or I was taken advantage of? You know, these things uh, make it harder for me to continue to do uh, things that I believe the Lord's calling me to, but the, the command still stands to, to have compassion and to love. And one of the best comforts that I found, and I want to challenge you all with this, is that perhaps you've been in a situation like this, and I guarantee you that this week, uh, many of you will be presented with an opportunity like this upon hearing this. I do believe once learning truth that the Lord tests to grow us. And so if this opportunity comes, please uh, do not hesitate. Do not be fearful. One thing that I've really tried to uh, think and, and live by in this regards is not to be reactive, but to be proactive, to continue to draw near, to continue to have compassion and let the Lord sort it out. You want to be wise, but at the same time, Maybe they are taking advantage of you, maybe they're not. But let the Lord sort it out and have compassion. So who are our neighbors? Who are the ones in our neighborhoods? You know, we have a, uh, so much better opportunity than our parents. Uh, I know for my parents, they worked in the city, lived at home, and they didn't quite ever live life anywhere. But for you and I, we live most of the time where we work, where we get our groceries, where we take our kids. And so I want to encourage you, let's be present also in not just our church, but in our communities, in our neighborhoods, to be hands and feet of Christ, to look for the least of those, to preserve life, to, 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 to carry it forward in love. So it addresses our actions. Secondly, it addresses our hearts. And we'll go through this a little more quicker quickly, if we look at Matthew 5, 21, 22, Jesus here again in the New Testament 
um, is, is almost expositing for us on the Sermon of the Mount, the Sixth Commandment. He gives us a different aspect now. Yes, there is an action that needs to be addressed of love and compassion and preserving life, but there's also something internal. He addresses uh, anger here, unrighteous anger. And this is what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus is saying here that the commandment to not murder is not just action-oriented. It's not just about what we do and don't do. But actually, it's still deeper still. It's about our heart. It's about the heart that we hold towards one another. Again, here Jesus is talking about unrighteous anger, an anger that is murderous towards others, an anger that is not concerned with preserving life, but an anger that is bitter and focused and obsessed with taking life, whether it be immediate or little by little in your own pleasurable, twisted justice sense of way. And I think about uh, the context that many of you are in. <laughs> and this is not a joke, but I really do love my co-worker, my co-laborer. And the Lord has allowed us to grow in deep friendship. But I know for many of us in your workplaces, it could be very difficult. And I really ponder, and I, and I struggle to say this with much authority because I, don't, I know I don't quite understand your work context. And it's extremely difficult, the relationship with co-workers. But I want to ask you, and I want to challenge you, is your relationship among your coworkers only professional? Do you treat them only as what their job title is? If that is our principle, then it shows that we are not actually seeing them as humans, but only our professional coworker. It might as well be a drone that has been given a job to carry out. If our outlook on our coworkers are only that they are here to do a job and so am I and there ought to be no other interactions, then we are not preserving and concerned about life. But yes, some of you know in those moments where you are talking to your coworkers, particularly about hardships in life, when you listen, it might be annoying, it might be tiresome, it might be life draining. But in that moment, you are being obedient to this command to love and to have compassion. In that moment, you are seeing this human being not just as a worker who is doing a job, but as a human being also created in the image of God. You are having compassion on them. So brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you with that also in your workplaces. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's just so much easier if you don't talk about life, kids, your struggles, and you just say, hey, can you send me that email? Hey, let's get this done. But if the opportunity should arise, and I pray that it does, <laughs> that would you find a way in wisdom to love them? You know, I might not really struggle with loving coworkers, but an area that I really struggle with is loving customer service representatives. And it's a bit funny, and it's a bit silly, but I'm being completely genuine here. I really have a hard time showing love and being compassionate to customer service representatives. When I'm talking to people on Zappos, Amazon, insurance, credit card, 
I get so furious and frustrated by the ladders of bureaucracy that I feel like I have to say the um, um, secret word to trigger the next response, to open up this way of resolving this issue, and, and I'm just rolling my eyes. I'm nasty, I'm short, I'm curt, I'm frank. Those aren't names, I'm, I'm trying to use synonyms and adjectives here. And, and, and in my heart, I'm murderous. Sometimes I think, where is this call center? I wonder if I ever passed them by at the grocery store. Man, if I knew who this was, I'd just be like, dude, just help me out. Or stop running me through this goose chase. And, I, and there, is, there is genuine murderous thoughts. Sometimes when I'm struggling and when I'm late, even to a ministry event and I get cut off or the car in front of me is slow, I think, what are they doing? What are they, what are they, they don't have anything interesting in life to do? They're just strolling. I'm important, I got things to do. And even those starts just to, just starts to cascade into murderous thoughts. Perhaps some of you guys, you're okay with all those things. Perhaps for you, the struggle is that family member who always borrows money and never pays you back. And I know that's a reality. Perhaps that's a reality that your parents experience. Perhaps it's your siblings or even your parents. Perhaps you're still stuck on last week's sermon and loving them. You know, there is a Korean saying, it's so harsh, and I'm sure in many languages they have something similar. In the Hebrew, it's to call someone raka, or to say, you fool. But the deeper meaning of it is to strip away the dignity of their humanity and basically say, they're not even a person. He's not even a person. I'm not going to even consider him a human being. We strip him of that. There the Lord addresses our heart, and he says, that we are actually in our hearts murderous and murdering. We're called to forgive. We're called to reconcile if possible. The sixth commandment tells us to preserve life, treat one another with dignity, have compassion for all of our fellow man in our actions and in our hearts. You know, this year we're really focusing on our household of faith. We're really focusing on um, praying for one another. You know, we're really on, focusing on being present with one another. And at the same time, give me the last P, Pastor Stephen. Prayer, present, pursue. Forgive me, forgive me, pursue. I'll study up and pursue one another. And that is fantastic. And I think that's what we need. Perhaps this year we need to focus inward, but at the same time, church, I would challenge us, let's not do that in place of also doing those things outward, praying, pursuing, and being present in our neighborhoods, in our communities, with our fellow man, preserving life. Let me conclude by this. In order for us to grow in obedience to this commandment, the gospel must fall fresh again. The gospel must fall fresh again. You must understand the good news of the gospel. If we are to grow in gracious understanding and carrying out of this commandment, the gospel must fall fresh again. And this is what I mean by this, that you and I have to understand the gospel message in light of the fact that we were the least desirable to be saved by our God and Jesus Christ, that we were unworthy, that we were unlovable, that we were diseased, contagious, that we are manipulative, that we are so quick to take advantage of God's grace upon forgiveness. How quick are we to turn back to our old sins? The gospel needs to fall fresh again, that the reality of it is that in the eyes of God, we are the very people that 
we detest in our own hearts. We are the very people that we walk past and turn our gaze from. Yet God, having compassion on us, sent his one and only son so that by his life we are given life. And if that reality, if that good news doesn't sink in with a deep joy and awe and satisfaction and appreciation, then we will never be able to grow in this commandment. If we don't first understand that we were the least, that we were the stinky, the smelly, the wretched, that we were the ones lying there fully dead, yet Jesus crossed in the streets so that he doesn't avoid us, but rather so that he encounters us, meets us, that he gives all that we need for salvation, that he gives all that we need for even in this life here. The Christian religion, the gospel message is not only about our Savior dying for us, but our Savior being born into this world, maturing in obedience, giving his life for sinners, and then being raised to life. The gospel message starts with life, ends with life. Death is just something that is defeated along the way. This is our hope as believers. Then in him we have a new life that leads to everlasting life. Death is just something in between. So there is nothing to be afraid of. So let me conclude with, with, with this, brothers and sisters, that, that life and eternal life is central to the gospel message. It's central to even this commandment to not murder and to preserve life, to love, to have compassion, to draw near. This is why we are called to do our best in faithfulness and diligence to be the hands and feet of Christ to the ends of the earth, to our neighbor who is sitting in our pews, to our neighbor who is in the cubicle next door, to our neighbor who we see in the front of a grocery store, to the neighbor who is at the entrance of our church, to the neighbor who is at the entrance of a strip mall holding a child, to the neighbor who might not even speak it, but we know in our hearts that they do need compassion and love and for us to draw near. This is what we are challenged with, but we're given much love and equipped with much experience of this for ourselves so that we may be the hands and feet of Christ. Let's take some time to meditate and pray on this, brothers and sisters, as we close.